Grand Rude Comedy Rascals Talking about important stuff and hopefully making you laugh. And if you don't laugh, well, at least you learned about something important. And if you don't care about that, well, that's on you. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Grasscast. I'm your host, Chris Blackwood, and we have such an amazing show for you today. I know I say that every time, but I really, really mean it this time. Today, we're going to be talking about Ukraine, the war in Ukraine. And uh, we also are going to be speaking with John Kuhn, who is the digital content producer of the U.S. Ukraine Foundation. So we're going to be getting into into that and doing a deeper dive into the cause and causes within the cause uh, in a minute. But right now, I would like to introduce my co-host for today. We are joined by a very special person. This person, I was fortunate enough to meet a week before our big Ukraine fundraiser event just the other week. It was Pretty serendipitous, actually. We both happened to be at an open mic, and she took the stage, and immediately it was clear that she is Ukrainian and is also very funny. And uh, I asked her if she could do the show, and she said yes. And it was just like it was meant to be. And now she's doing this, taking the interview, by the way, during working hours from her car, which is just another example of Ukrainian resilience. So anyway... Anna, could you please introduce yourself? Hello, everybody. My name is Anna Tirad-Geffen, and uh, I live in the DMV area and do comedy after work sometimes. You all hear my accent. Um, It's actually a good thing. It helps me make friends. (laughs) People come up to me on the street and ask me where I'm from. So I tell them. I'm from Rockville, Maryland. <laughs> and um, I learned my English from Arnold Schwarzenegger movies. <laughs> my children learned English from me. So they're second generation accent speakers. When did you move to the States? And why did you move here? My family moved to United States in February 1992 as Jewish refugees from the former Soviet Union. Ukraine has gained independence just a few months prior to that. And we actually arrived here still with our Soviet passports. Oh, wow. How was that journey here? I was in my late teens, about to graduate from high school. Mm -hmm. My life in Ukraine was all mapped out, because partly because there were not so many options. So I knew what my option was. And I did not want to leave because everything I knew was there. All my friends was there. But that decision was made by my parents. And I'm grateful to them for this. And when we were leaving, we were leaving forever. I Mm -hmm. didn't know that I would see anybody there again or I would ever be able to return again because this is how Jewish refugees left during the Soviet Union times. 
their citizenship was taken away and they arrived to United States or wherever stateless persons. Today's episode is brought to you by White Russians. White Russians, the drink that's so good, its name is a redundancy. You've got to drink more than just one. Russians are white. That's, that's the joke here. What brought you to comedy? What is it that led you from, from that being a, an immigrant in the United States to being a comedian? So this is also uh, a little bit serendipitous and um, an interesting story. It was not an intentional goal, but after we moved to Maryland from Virginia in 2013, I am a religious Jew and I go to a synagogue and the synagogue had a women-only open mic and I attended the very first one and I saw a woman who did some comedy and funny songs. I really enjoyed her act and I thought that I could do better. I work as a missile analyst, um, which is a rocket scientist. And that comes really handy at parties. <laughs> if I want to get rid of somebody, I say, so, what do you do? Ah, and I am a rocket scientist. <laughs> if the, they don't excuse themselves right away, something is wrong with them, I never had anybody come up to me and say, oh, how fun, tell me more, tell me everything about rockets. <laughs> Because if you do that, something is wrong with you, or you're a North Korean spy. <laughs> so I'm an engineer, and it's very special to be a woman engineer in America, because there are so few of us. And sometimes my male colleagues don't realize that there's a woman in the room. I had somebody say to me, to explain something complicated, explain it to me so that your grandmother would understand. And I said, okay, let me explain it to you. My grandmother was way smarter than your grandmother. <laughs> what brought me to comedy is a little bit of competitiveness mm -hmm. and also lack of other performing arts talents. Mm -hmm. so next year, I tried and it went very well. People mm -hmm. expected me to do it at every one of these events. And I only started doing it outside of that venue, maybe in 2019. So I started, wow. I believe in 2016. And even then for the first year or so, maybe even two years, I was not looking for opportunities. I was just doing things that fell on my lap, maybe mm -hmm. two, three times a year. But then when my youngest child got a little older, it became easier to leave the house in the evening. And I decided that I deserve a hobby. So I'm trying to do it more. And uh, what I like about it is also making new connections and meeting new people, new communities. I love that. I love that. And it's, it's funny you said that you were inspired by a comedian that you thought you were better than, because that is also how I got into comedy. I was going to an open mic, not to perform, but just because it was an open mic that happened 
to be taking place at a bar I went to on Wednesdays because they had drink deals. And uh, I thought to myself, wow, these comedians are terrible. And I could be one of these terrible comedians and I could probably be less terrible than most of them. So, yeah, it's funny how sometimes poor performance is actually inspiring for others. No, this woman was not terrible. She was very, very good and I enjoyed oh, it. Oh, okay. I had a different voice and a lot to say uh, okay. and that inspired me. That's good. That's, <laughs> that is uh, much more motivational than my reason. I like that. Um, she was good, but you thought you were even better instead of these people are not good and I'm also not good, but probably, you know, a little better than them. Um, yeah, yours, your version is much more inspiring. I like that. So uh, what are some differences between Ukrainian and American humor? I'm, I'm always fascinated by how humor translates and doesn't translate across cultures and languages. So what, what have you found uh, as far as differences and similarities as you've sort of been figuring out how to be funny in English and in this culture that you didn't grow up in? I don't know if my answer can represent how Ukrainian humor is now because I sorry, left. Sorry, you're the representative for Ukraine. I'm sorry. Right. I left oh, Ukraine yeah. 30 years ago and I yeah, haven't been keeping up with Ukrainian uh, media and culture. Sure. Sure. But I can speak to what I remember growing up. Um, humor was everywhere in everyday life. Families and friends, they told each other jokes routinely. Um, a lot of those jokes were um, insightful. Sometimes you can say things in a joke uh, in a much shorter way than if you try to explain them. Sometimes they often poked fun of on national stereotypes because Ukraine and Soviet Union has many nationalities living in it. Sometimes mm -hmm. it, those were not very nice jokes. And a lot of them were about everyday situations. And Aside from jokes, there were also a lot of very sharp folk sayings that were in use, at least in my family, in everyday life. Myself, I catch myself at home wanting to just repeat those to my children who unfortunately don't speak my native language, which is Russian. But sometimes I translate them because uh, it's the best way you can express something or a lesson, a teaching moment. This was just part of the culture. In terms of stand-up comedy, the stand-up comedy style uh, during the Soviet Union times was not the same as here in America, where you have a show with multiple performers and shorter sets. Mm -hmm. There were a few comedians that were stars. I guess they were allowed to be stars, and they would tour with long solo shows. Um, mm. They were funny, but it allowed them to do more of a storytelling style. Mm -hmm. And one that's famous, and he was also famous during post-Soviet times, and I think even got into politics, is Mikhail Zhvanetsky. And there were many others that I don't recall the names of, but just like everybody else, I knew them and their jokes. Let me ask you this. I mean, President Zelensky is a Ukrainian comedian who is now one of the most iconic presidents in the history of the world. I haven't heard that officially, but that is what I am making out of what I am seeing and hearing in the media. You are a Ukrainian comedian. So uh, 
what does this mean for you? Are the stakes just higher or do you, do you feel this pressure to, to follow that? Like, how do you follow a comedian who is now like a global icon and a president? It, is that not having any impact on you at all? This is a very good question. I do not um, aim to follow uh, President Zelensky. Actually, I don't aim to follow anybody. Mm-hmm. I think uh, what I value about comedy and what I aspire to is to have my own genuine style that reflects who I am. And I think that makes comedy interesting. So the only person I'm competing with is myself. Beautiful. Beautiful. That That is actually the correct answer. I, I bet you didn't know that was a like a multiple choice. Like there was there was a correct answer. And that was it. <laughs> um, no, that, that's that's perfect. I do imagine, though, I mean, for me, when I am, a, you know, when I perform abroad and I've traveled a good amount and performed whenever I get a chance to when abroad, uh, whenever there's another American comedian there, I feel this immense pressure to be at least as funny as that person, because like we are the representatives, you know, of an entire country in front of that audience. And uh, in this case, it's like, I know at least Americans have not been exposed very much or at all to Ukrainian comedy. And now they see this this one example of this like amazing, professional, successful person who is not only a great comedian, but, a, you know, has proven himself to be a great leader. So so that doesn't put any pressure on you at all. That doesn't that doesn't make you anxious at all. You're just like, you know, no. what? he's doing his own thing. I'm going to do my own thing. Yes, yes, exactly. And um, it's an awful situation in Ukraine, of course, but now Americans know what Ukraine is. Mm -hmm. And uh, I actually had to retire a joke poking fun of that because Mm -hmm. now it's just not true. Right. Yeah, it's it's a shame that this is how we know. But but uh, but yeah, Americans are much more educated on uh, Ukraine and for example to to refer to it as Ukraine and not the Ukraine which we also get into in our interview those are all the questions I had for you do you have any other thoughts anything you want to you want to chat about before we get into this interview with John I maybe want to add a little bit about um, humor you were talking about Ukrainian humor and me being a comedian from Ukraine I don't think I'm specifically performing Ukrainian-style humor. I'm performing American humor. Uh, You know, my husband is Brazilian, born and grew up in Brazil, and he specifically says, oh, you know, your jokes are American humor. You know, I like Brazilian humor. So he he recognizes that. I'm not sure American audiences would appreciate, understand purely Ukrainian style humor all the mm-hmm. time. Got it. That that makes sense. I mean, that, that brings me to another question. What would Americans get and what would they not? So when you say that you're not sure everything would translate, is there an example that you could give of something that, you know, consistently works? You can, whether or not it's, it's a, like a joke or a type of joke. You, you mentioned storytelling. Of course, we have storytelling here as well. Yeah. I mean, can you think of an example? Yeah, I mean, for storytelling, you would have to have uh, audience expecting that and much longer spots. So Mm -hmm. that would not necessarily work in every kind of venue. I think what translates well are jokes on 
topics that are universal, you know, family, work, children, relationships, um, things that everybody understand. What may not translate so well are jokes that presume the understanding of history, culture, sure, um, sure. culture surrounding Ukraine, neighborhoods. So, uh, you know, like every country uh, has this negative stereotype of their neighbors abroad. Um, and also in those times, those would not play well just in general in America. Mm -hmm. and neither should they. And again, I haven't kept up with Ukrainian humor, so mm -hmm. I do not know um, how that is presented right now there. Gotcha. Good to know. So if I were to go to Ukraine, not now, probably not the best time to try this right now, but at some point in the future and do comedy, what jokes do you think would be fair game like would do well i'm thinking based on what you just said you know i could talk about aging i could talk about relationships i could talk about you know uh getting married balding those kinds of things would probably probably work i have been to places and tried out material that has not worked like i did a 20 minute set in south africa once and uh, none of my jokes worked, not except for my very first one, where I uh, said that I was Trevor Noah's more affordable replacement. Uh, oh. And uh, and that was it. That was the only one that worked. Um, so I ended up trying crowd work. And uh, then the audience really wanted me to talk about land and I didn't really understand why. So I kept talking about online dating and then I got off stage and learned that they wanted me to talk about land redistribution as a white person. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, happy. I didn't understand what they were trying to get me to talk about. Uh, but that is to say, I mean, it was, it was rough and uh, yeah, I guess I, um, I'm just wondering what, I should know about comedy before doing it in Ukraine. Like what jokes would be safe? And what jokes would you say, eh, maybe, maybe not, maybe skip this one? I, th I think you should stay away from blue comedy because I think all kinds of people come to shows. And, um, you know, about family, a little bit about kind of perspective switch, poking fun at Americans. Oh, yeah, um, I do that. I do that all the time. <laughs> And, uh, you know, children, pets, uh, <laughs> okay. food. There are many subjects that um, everybody understands. Perfect. Okay. So keep, keep it universal is what I'm hearing. That, that makes sense. You know, from the very beginning of me doing it, my stuff was good where it uh, did improve as I became more concise. You know, like mm -hmm. I learned pretty quickly how to condense my jokes so they're more jokes and not stories and um yeah that and mm -hmm. um so i don't know i think i'm lucky you know it just uh, comes to me often the whole jokes they just come to me and i record them and from that initial version to the final version there are not too many changes mm -hmm. yeah yeah that that makes sense and that sounds like a really a really good way to progress. Uh, and, and again, like impressive that you were able to do that in such a short period of time, seemingly. I mean, I've been doing comedy uh, consistently for nine years, but inconsistently for longer than that. And uh, 
yeah, it's a long process. So it sounds like you, you are going through that process faster than others. So that's, that's great. Maybe it was just all waiting to get out. You know? I, yeah, it could have very well been. It sounds like you're, you're someone with a lot of experience under your belt, and experience leads to comedy. Today's episode is brought to you by Ignorance. Ignorance. Find yourself saying something that offends someone, and it's not obvious to you why exactly? Claim ignorance and take the opportunity to learn something. It's hard to stay mad at someone if they just don't know better, and they own up to it. And if you mess up again, claim a learning disability, and then try really hard to stop offending people. Okay, so we are now joined by John Kuhn. John is the digital content producer of the U.S.-Ukraine Foundation. Hello and welcome, John. Glad to be with you. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Let's just get into it. First of all, in your own words, who are you? What do you do? And what does the U.S.-Ukraine Foundation do? I am uh, vice president of the U.S.-Ukraine Foundation. I've been with the organization since about 1993, right after Ukraine became independent, uh, you know, at the collapse of the Soviet Union. The organization's aim, it's still the aim, is to support Ukraine's democracy. You know, their desire for a uh, free market economy and to support human rights and protect minorities, etc. That's what we do. I've been involved in many aspects of a small foundation, from uh, grant writing to grant administration to financials to fundraising social media, et cetera. So when small organization, people involved have to wear a lot of hats and I have plenty of hats through the years. Well, that's great. Hats are important. Hats, hats can are good. Uh, keep you warm, but particularly for those who have less hair like myself. So uh, <laughs> I'm curious though, what is your personal connection, if you have one, to mm-hmm. Ukraine? It sounds like you've devoted much of your professional career. I'm the son of immigrant parents, an older sibling sister, who also was born before she arrived here in the United States. They came over post-World War II from Ukraine into through Germany. We're in uh, camps, you know, displaced persons camps for four years and arrived in Boston at the Customs House in downtown Boston in 1949. I missed that boat. I was born a few years later. I was born in Rhode Island, being a son of immigrants. And after such a political uh, event, and obviously World War II, you know, discussions at, at the dinner table often revolved around politics and culture and Ukraine. That essentially was my uh, sort of the impetus for me to be a history major at Holy Cross College in Massachusetts mm. and getting a master's in public administration at Suffolk University in Boston. And I've worked in local government I came to Washington in 88, 89 to work for another organization, Ukraine organization called the Ukraine National Association. They were trying at that time, as the uh, walls of of communism were crumbling, they wanted to be ready and uh, tell Congress, uh, people on the Hill, senators and congressmen about Ukraine, what they should know about Ukraine. It was really like gentle lobbying, gentle government relations type of work. And I soon joined the the new U.S. Ukraine Foundation in uh, 1993. So it sounds like 
you are qualified. <laughs> that was my takeaway. Uh, by now, someone has figured that out. I think. <laughs> <laughs> not, not that I was ever, ever questioning that. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> it might have been. Might have you know, there's, there's a lot of folks uh, speaking to the Ukraine out there, to Ukraine rather. Why don't we get into some serious questions before we sprinkle in some silliness? For the first question, I've already actually broached it a little bit because I just just now made the mistake myself of using the article when referring to Ukraine. The question is, is it the Ukraine or Ukraine? And uh, follow-up question, what is the best way for ignorant Americans to apologize after accidentally saying it, say, for example, at a Ukrainian relief comedy show fundraiser? No apologies on <laughs> Okay. In Ukraine, in the Ukrainian language, and I and I believe it's true for all Slavic languages, there is no article. That's a, an English, we thought this up, you know, we have to have an article, the something, the ball, the book, the, you know, in Ukrainian, there is no such article. So to apply the word the to the word Ukraina, which means Ukraine, it w- is not, it's not uh, appropriate from the Ukrainian language. There's no, there's no article. So mm-hmm. uh, how did that happen? From what I know and what I've read, and I think in the 19th century, you know, as the Russian Empire, you know, was in existence and they had to talk about that land that was, uh, you know, south, southeast of Moscow. When people from outside of Russia, outside of Ukraine, were visiting and were writing reports and writing news articles on for some reason, they called it the Ukraine. It may have been because they felt it was sort of a regional part of the Russian Empire, and that stuck. As the years went on, the people referred it to the Ukraine. And since independence, and prior to independence, uh, Ukraine-Americans here always sort of chafed at that. that mm-hmm. you know, you're sort of minimizing, you're making it something what it's not, meaning, it, you know, sort of something inferior, something uh, smaller than a regional aspect to it right. compared to Russia. So right. they, uh, it's always been a sort of a battle to uh, let the people, especially the people involved in news and reporting and all that, let them know that there is no need for the word the prior mm-hmm. to Ukraine. That was my takeaway from uh, the heavy amount of research I did after I realized that I had made the mistake. <laughs> Uh, and set it into a microphone in front of a crowd full of people, including uh, not-so-happy Ukrainians, I I learned after the show. Uh, So very good to know. And and yeah, my understanding is that it it also has a lot to do with, like you said, independence. And to say it almost equates denying independence. Uh, It's, you know, essentially saying that it is or should be a part of Russia. Um, That's my understanding. I think you're being a little too harsh on yourself. <laughs> okay. And you know, to take it to that extreme, uh, people use it and they're not, they're not, they're well-intentioned. They're not meaning to do, you know, to, mm-hmm. to do what you've just described. Mm-hmm. And it's, it takes education and it takes, um, mm-hmm. you know, people realizing that. So uh, you're, I think you're being uh, too tough on yourself. Well, I, I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I should have spoken to you earlier before I, I, I was, uh, yeah, just, um, I'm bummed out last week. I was like, oh, no, this is my first public apology I've ever had you know, to do. Okay. It's, it's, a very, it's a small faux pas. It's not like, a, you know, in, in, 
like I said, people who are being well-intentioned, it's more, we need to do a better job of educating everyone also. Mm-hmm. About, so, and sadly, I mean, people are learning about Ukraine today through a war. So mm-hmm. that's yeah. all part of it. You know, my right. work has become much simpler and easier uh, when you talk about educating people or going before, you know, different American organizations and talking about Ukraine become a lot more easier now. <laughs> It's true. It also kind of has to undo a lot of, uh, yeah, a lot of the education folks have gotten in other ways about Ukraine, uh, mm-hmm. where the was has been used. Like, I yeah. keep thinking about that Seinfeld episode where I don't know if you're a Seinfeld Yeah, fan, I'm aware of it. Yeah. Yeah. Where there's a Ukrainian yeah. on the subway and he's like, the Ukraine is not weak. And that just. <laughs> For some reason, okay. it stayed in my head. And, right. uh, the and, the, and the board goes up in the air. All you got it. Yep. <laughs> yep. There you go. Why don't we move along? we got many other questions. Anna, would you like to ask the next question? Yes, of course. So, John, didn't Putin learn anything from 2014? I guess not. I don't think he learned much. At one point during that during that year, 2014, you know, there was a reporter, I recall, sort of getting under Putin's skin with questions. And Putin sort of angrily retorted, you know, I could take Kiev in seven days. He still I think he thought that this time, eight years later, he thought he could he could do it within days. He didn't realize we're sort of like it's a frozen conflict in the Donbass today. Part of you know, a, a small part of Ukraine is still under. Soviet-backed separatists, they've been throwing volleys of uh, artillery back and forth. People still get hurt. I mean, this is before February 24th. This has been going on for eight years. And people have been getting uh, injured, people have getting killed. It's like a drip, drip, drip type of thing for eight years. I think he sort of forgot how the Ukrainians responded then. At the time, the Ukrainians were very much ill-prepared to fight. They had very little of a military preparation in the eight years since. There's been a lot of training going in, in Western Ukraine, in Yavidil. Uh, Ukrainian trainers, military trainers, have been assisting the Ukrainian military, and also from England, from uh, Canada. And they have done a lot to support the, the Ukrainian military. Ukrainians are good learners. They're, Ukrainians are very resourceful. They have open minds about that, and they have gained a lot and I think well, a good deal of that is showing over the past uh, you know, 40 days of this war. I don't think Putin learned, he sort of learned his lessons mm-hmm. that he should have learned. It's always been an attitude, a Russian attitude toward Ukrainians that he, that he holds. I'm not to say everyone does, but he definitely believes that Ukraine and the land of Ukraine should be subservient to, subservient to the Russian Empire, to the Soviet Union. He thinks the same should apply today. That all makes sense. And uh, it sounds like it might tie into this next question about what Putin underestimated. I mean, it, it sounds like he in large part just just answered that question. Is there anything else that you would say he underestimated when going into this whole thing? Well, there's so much been said about the Ukrainians will for freedom. I think he he definitely uh, underestimated that. You know, he thought that he would just roll in some troops and be uh, liberating Ukrainians and all that, and liberating Russian-speaking Ukrainians. That's been, that's like a 360-degree turn from what he thought. I think he underestimated the resourcefulness and, and the will to fight 
gosh, I don't know where what he was thinking. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, uh, you know, what could you have been thinking there, Vladdy boy? You know, <laughs> right. after a few days of just you know when it started, someone must have thought, you know, what what have you done here? <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. Have you guys heard of Russian brides? Russian brides? Why is it ever a thing? Don't they have men in Russia? I don't know, maybe if Putin the best they could come up with. And he still takes his shirt off from time to time to prove that he's a man. But back to the topic, no. The real reason is that Russian men are very traditional. They have their women do all the women's jobs around the house, like cooking, cleaning, and childcare. But now they're also becoming more modern and progressive. And they let her do all the men's jobs, too. So I wonder, I mean, John and Anna, you know, both of you have some you know, perspective on this. Uh, were you just watching this sort of slowly unravel and thinking to yourselves like, wow, I thought he was smart, but this is a really dumb move and he has no idea what he's doing. And this is going to backfire. Like, did you kind of see this coming? You know, what I feared greatly was that uh, and I still fear it. You know, military operation usually uh, his it's called a special military operation by him. We shouldn't mm-hmm. we don't want to get arrested by the uh, by the record sure. here. But uh, he was thinking, I guess, that this would go so easily that the Ukrainians, uh, you know, would put up very little resistance. And uh, my fear was that he was going to just level a good number of cities, which what he's what he is doing. And just destroy the economy of Ukraine. You know, he could walk walk away. He could walk mm-hmm. away and try to hold on to some of the territories that they gained, and especially the region that he he's had since 2014, the Crimea and the Donbas. He would then cut his losses. He would cut his uh, spending on it. He would have done what he sort of told people he was going to do. He was going to basically eradicate Ukraine that he didn't believe there. Ukrainians were worthy of being a, a, a nation state or a people. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he could just could do that. I, I, that's my that's my greatest fear, especially when you have cultural artifacts, buildings that are going that, you know, several hundred years old, losing some of that cultural legacy that, that'll be gone. So that was my greatest fear. I think when the war started happening and unfolding, there is this kind of a double perspective. We all have our biases. We have our familiarity bias. We assume that politicians and people who are in charge of countries and lives and big militaries, you know, they have certain goals, certain qualities. Uh, we treat heads of state with certain dignity. So the persp- overwhelming perspective on Putin was well, yes, he's a tough guy. We disagree on many things, but he's um, playing by the international rules. But there was always an alternative perspective on that that also fit into the picture is that Putin is a brutal ruler who is not playing by the rules. He's just going along and waiting for his opinion. and. Um, what happened just gave validity to the second perspective. Maybe Putin did not change. Maybe he did not miscalculate. Maybe he is willing to um, sacrifice 
a lot on behalf of the Russian people and Russia to achieve his objectives. And maybe he's always been like that. It's just we were afraid to believe it. Yeah, I think you have a, that's a very valid perspective. I think that's yeah. true. He's no different today than he was yesterday or the day before or 10 years ago. And he's willing to use brutal methods to get his way, let alone against the Chechens or against the Syrians mm-hmm. or individuals that he's gone out and tried to, has killed and he has tried to kill others who he thought were his enemies within the Russian state. People who have left Russia for whatever reason, you know, people in the intelligence community and all that. So what you're making is a valid point. I, sometimes you hear about people saying, well, he, pro- he is still very... Uh, treacherous, very dangerous. He's proving uh, he's maybe not a very good strategic thinker because mm-hmm. that his his ways have been b- very brutish, have been very uh, barbaric throughout the history of what we have known him as, as a leader of Russia. And so, yeah, I think that's a valid, valid uh, look at it. And I really do. Yeah, it's a shame that it, it's taken this for everyone to, to see mm-hmm. that and understand yeah, he should be like Charles Manson, who actually has a swastika tattooed on his forehead. It's it's actually like a favor he's doing, you know? Like, there's no, <laughs> there's no confusion there. Yeah. Yeah, don't need yeah. to wait for atrocities to happen. We'll, we'll have to look closer at his bare-chested, you know, body, you know, right. once he, he gets back on the horseback and rides around, you know. <laughs> right, right. Okay, final serious question. How long will the war continue John, and what is your best guess on how it will end? If this were a uh, March Madness bracket, like what would you what would you bet on happening here? I don't know if that's the best analogy. You know, it's not. But <laughs> how is this going to end? I, I always felt I felt I was rooting for St. Peter's to give you an indication on that answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, there you uh, go. So we should not listen to you. you know, it's much easier if you're a Kansas or you're a Kentucky or sure. you're a Duke, or right? UNC or, or right. something. Right. You, know, mm-hmm. you have the assets there. So um, how long will it last? I, I'm fearful that it, it's going to last a while. I mean, if you take the most immediate history of what he did in 2014, he's still there, right? And they're still, mm-hmm. like, I, as I mentioned, they're still... There's still uh, there had been prior to the to this current war now for eight years a lot of uh, there have been death and injuries and uh, artillery fire etc. One side th- you know the Russian side throws it over to Ukraine Ukraine throws it back at them and shooting another volley goes one way etc. And that's been going on for eight years until now. So the current situation leads me to believe it could go for another. Why not go for another eight years if if mm-hmm. he's willing to you know make the Russia, the people of Russia suffer financially and uh, emotionally and being the pariahs of the world in public opinion. Well, he, he, maybe he'll he'll do it. He'll he'll continue. I'm sure everyone else doesn't want we don't want that. But, you know, he's the war. He started the war and he's going to end the war. Well, how long? Who, who knows? But I could foresee it being quite a while. Is that your guess on how it will end? It's just going to last a very, oh, very long oh, time. Oh, how will it end? Well, the Ukrainian yeah, I guess people, those are two different questions. Yeah, know? yeah. That, the Ukrainian people, they were, the reason they're going to go because they've they've been subjected to the horrors already, the horrors of uh, of the war, the barbarism. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've lost so much already. Uh, you know, if you don't have anything, you're willing to go as far as you can go, and as long as they get support from from the West, from the U.S. 
they're gonna they're gonna stake it, you know. And after losing so many people, the, the death and all that, and the you know the barbarism, the butcherism of uh, Bucha, etc. They're gonna why not? You know, I don't see them negotiating anything to keep the status quo as it is right now. Right. I, I see them wanting the Russians to leave Ukraine, uh, Ukraine of ninth of twenty thirteen. You know, not I don't I, you know, this is their opportunity to push the, the Russians out of the Donbass, get them out of Crimea. Mm-hmm. I don't see them negotiating anything less than that. Yeah, it's, um, it's know, pretty scary. Otherwise, the other thing is, after losing so much, when would you have the opportunity to regain those territories later right. on? The right. opportunity and the loss, mm-hmm. the suffering that has been, have been has occurred will prevent you from doing that for who knows how long mm-hmm. and that so i don't see them accepting that status quo that right you know the uh the 20 let's say the what has occurred since 2014 right and then there's the very scary question that comes after that which is well what what happens when it's clear that putin is going to lose what does putin do when he's cornered that's terrifying that's a terrifying um, question right right uh, we don't want to go there, I guess, yeah. right? That, that's too dangerous, right? Yeah, and it's just it's, it's just scary. Okay, so uh, transitioning, humor. Let's talk about that. Humor has emerged as part of Ukrainian resilience. I've read an article recently saying that uh, this is something that Ukrainians have, have always had as part of their culture and uh, are really using right now on uh, you know a, a global platform in a way that people haven't seen internationally. Anna, maybe you could speak to that a little bit. You're probably the most qualified person in this conversation to speak to it as a Ukrainian comedian. Uh, what's your take on humor in the Ukraine? As uh, you said, Chris, uh, humor has always been a part of Ukrainian culture, mm-hmm. a celebrated part of it and part of everyday life. And I think it's just a sign of the fact that Ukrainians are happy, optimistic, resilient people. Right now, unfortunately, um, under bad circumstances, but the whole world has a chance to see that. Like, for example, just before the Russian invasion of his country, Ukrainian writer Andrei Kirkov, I'm so sorry if I'm mispronouncing that. It's probably happening. But uh, he posted a sardonic alert on Twitter. He basically said, Kiev weather forecast, plus five degrees Celsius, windy, chances of Russian invasion attack, 30% feels like 95%. <laughs> I mean, that's that's funny. Yeah. It's terrifying, but that's funny. And yeah. uh, there's been, just been so much like humor and satire, whether it be dark or, or or not, but it's it's consistent and it is proven to be sort of a yeah, I mean a form of true resilience and opposition, and uh, that's even without talking about the fact that the president is a comedian himself and uh, really knows how to use the media as a, a weapon in a way, a very effective one, very effective tool. And, and, and John, what do you think we can learn at like the West? What do you think there is to learn about this? You know, how, how might that be applied here? Or just, I don't know, discuss. 
in relation to humor or not <laughs> relation to humor and just like general sort of yeah i guess using humor using comedy as a tactic for for resilience for opposition i think it's always been there mm-hmm. uh, the ukrainians have a, a a very it can be a very earthy type of humor mm-hmm. it can be a very they look at things in a, from different perspectives uh, very very well especially you know when you've been you've been the subjects of other empires through a history mm-hmm. uh you have a different take on on things you might have the you know you might have the minority opinion but it it can be it can be very cutting it can be very sharp you know it can be and to a great extent very true also right mm-hmm. so you know, it's sort of that spiritual, it's sort of, a, 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 you know, I'll, I'll take the sort of a spiritual side to it, too. I mean, look at our experience in this country with the, with, you know, African-Americans. What they've endured has created such soulful and uh, very spiritual songs and mm-hmm. and feelings and, you know, the, the desire for, you know, for human rights in America, you know, voting. You know, they don't want that to be disregarded or, or taken away, you know, as we all do, but it, it comes so much stronger from that community because of what they have endured through the centuries. Mm-hmm. That's the same. Think about, about that in the Ukrainian perspective. That's the same thing. You, you know, Ukrainians have had also, there's been a lot of international uh, ex- sort of experiences in Ukraine. You know, they, through, through the Russian empire and until today, you take like a city like Odessa. Odessa is a very much an international type of city, mm-hmm. and uh, being exposed to uh, people from afar that, that came there. And this goes back to the you know the Greeks and the Romans. Uh, you know, you want to take it that far back. Ukrainians and even Christianity coming to to Ukraine, and they absorbed uh, Ukrainians, the people of that land, absorbed things and, and culture from the Greeks, the Romans. And, and from Christianity, they, they just applied it to what they had known. So there's a great lesson for all of us from all that. I, I could go on that, but I'll leave it. But so I think as Americans and people, you know, people of the world, uh, to realize the Ukrainians are very, uh, in the current situation, and I, what I've experienced, having been there through my work and my family for six, seven, I've visited Ukraine six, seven times since the mid-90s. You know, they're very... They've been always open to new ideas, and they had to. They had to grapple with an empire, with an economy and a political system that totally collapsed from the Soviets, and they had to rebuild and change. You know, it's like, again, like that 360 spin, they've had to adapt and, and go with that, and very, very difficult. But so I think there's a lot to for us to learn to how do we incorporate new ideas and some of the things that you were you might not had may not have incorporated and had not been at your disposal and the the ukrainians show their adaptability and their resourcefulness in that so i tell people that communism is actually a religion we had prayer we wrote to soviet official asking for things and just like in prayer getting an answer would be like a miracle (laughs) and we had to have faith because we were told that we live in the best country in the world. And we had to believe it because we couldn't see it. (laughs) 
Now that I came to America, I'm told that I now live in the best country in the world. <laughs> See how lucky I am? Yeah. So we used to host au pairs, those international nannies for helping take care of our five children. And one year we had an au pair from Russia. And it was the night before presidential elections and she asked me, so who is going to win tomorrow? And I said, I don't know. That's why we have the elections. <laughs> and she told me in Russia, we always know. <laughs> so here's a tip. They don't want me to tell you, but... <laughs> if you have a death wish, become an ambitious politician in Russia, <laughs> or an independent journalist, or just go demonstrate on the street, the choice is how to die in Russia, just keep multiplying over there. Putin, Putin, you know, Putin jokes will never get old because Putin will never stop being the president of Russia. He's been the president so almost since year 2000. He switched with Medvedev for four years and then he switched back. And do you know why Medvedev was chosen? It's because he's five feet, four inches tall. He's one of five men in Russia who are shorter than Putin. <laughs> and the other four are still 14 and growing. Anna, what is your favorite Ukrainian joke? <laughs> uh, this is a difficult question. Mm -hmm. um, I grew up hearing jokes almost every day. I'm from Russian-speaking part of Ukraine, from Kharkiv. Um, and in Russian, we call them anecdote, which um, in English means story, but they were often you know, tied to situations in life. And somebody in your family would just come home and say, hey, have you heard this joke? And... Um, it's um, was part of fabric of life, uh, and everybody did that. You know, ordinary people all the time. Um, the one that just pops into my mind. I don't know if it's related to current situation, but during the Soviet times, where everybody was equal, but everybody was equally poor and couldn't really um, improve their situation because of merit. Um, there was this joke, they pretend to pay us and we pretend to work. Yeah, mm. right. yeah. I, I have one too. Oh, nice. What's yours, John? <laughs> this was told to me by my dad. My dad uh, died back in uh, 2007 at the ripe old age of about 94 and a half. Oh, and uh, to play on the sort of the, the Russian, Ukrainian, you know, uh, sort of the, not, not necessarily animosity, but be you know be careful of of uh, you know of the Russians and all that. And it again, like Anna, Anna you know, plays into today's situation to, to get a better for some. It might be uh, you know get a better understanding. To uh, a Ukrainian and Russian are going down a country road, and after mm -hmm. walking a while, they see something on the side of the road, and it's like a 
something shiny. And so they both go to it and it's a big chest. They open the chest and it's a it's all gold bullion. It's all gold coins. And now they're just they're celebrating, they're having a great time. What, look at what we have found. And so eventually the Russian says, Wow, you know, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to divide this up. So I suggest that we divide this like brothers, you and me, a Russian and Ukraine. And Ukraine says, No, not you know, you know uh, we could do that, but let's go 50-50. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I think that relates to the point you brought up earlier, Chris, as yeah. humor, as a form of resistance. Mm -hmm. If you think about it, an ability to joke about anything and anybody is a sign of freedom. Mm -hmm. In Russia right now, where they're going to put pe people in jail just for saying the world war, there is no freedom and there is no trust between people. So I suspect that people are afraid to make jokes, even within their families or between friends, because you never know which of your friends will go to the police station and tell on you. I'm not a regular consumer of Russian or Ukrainian media, but recently I saw a YouTube video of a comedian touring Russia and his comedy was in Russian, but he was an ethnic minority uh, who lived in Belarus. This was obviously before the war. One of his jokes was probably a true story about how he was arrested and put temporarily in a Russian holding cell. And his crime was initiating ethnic conflict between Russians and other peoples. And it was based on the content of his jokes. But he made it a funny story, and it was true. And he was saying things like, I have a good lawyer. And he told me, you have no chance of uh, winning this process because he was a good lawyer. <laughs> and people laugh at this, but this was true. He didn't have to do very much to make it a joke. Yeah. And I think fortunately he was released, but I don't think he can come back to Russia anymore. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I just Googled Russian jokes and there are some one-liners and um, I'm going to read a few of these. Robber at the checkout in the store, put all the money in the bag. Cashier says the bag costs five rubles. Robber says, I have my own bag. <laughs> okay. Mm -hmm. So this segment is... Uh, arguably the silliest segment that we have mm -hmm. in it. We, we role play. What we're going to do is Anna and I will role play as an aunt and uncle at a Thanksgiving dinner. You are at the table as well, John, you are part of the family mm -hmm. and uh, we are telling you why Putin is actually a good guy. Why he's actually really smart and a strong leader. Why, uh, you know, the invasion of Ukraine isn't really that bad a thing. And it actually makes sense. And have you listened to his arguments? Because, you know, he's a smart guy. And every media channel in Russia is, you know, supporting him. So how mm -hmm. could he be wrong? Mm -hmm. So we are going to, but uh, this is just for the sake of, of argument. And uh, you're going to have to respond to us at the Thanksgiving dinner table. 
Thanks, Gary. Okay. Sound good? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and Anna, I don't I don't know if you can do an American accent. Are you able to do one, Anna, for the sake of the role play? No, to... I can't, but I can okay. be an aunt who uh, doesn't speak English and therefore consumes Russian media exclusively. Okay, but you are going to have to role play in English. So Okay, so I learned a few words just for so, that. So you, yeah, you've learned enough to, to have this, this conversation, this uh, tense Thanksgiving conversation. Okay. So we're going to get into it. Okay, John, I see that you have, you're wearing a Ukrainian pin, and I don't understand why you're promoting this propaganda here at the, the Thanksgiving dinner table, okay? Look, here in the South, we know that Putin is actually a strong leader who should be praised, okay? We've heard it from Trump himself, all right? He's gone out and he's talked about how strong he is, how smart he is. And don't deny it. You can't deny how strong and smart a man he is. He has full control over his people. What do you have to say to that, John? Well, yeah, at gunpoint, he does. <laughs> right, you know. He, yeah, he's got the he's, uh, it, You know, it makes a man strong. What's wrong yeah. with a gun if it makes you strong, John? <laughs> right. I hope we don't have to resort this for, you know, to do this all the time here. <laughs> well, it's, you know, this happens once a year, this Thanksgiving day. But it's <laughs> uh, so not all the time. My uh, my Russian wife, Anna, here at the dinner table, who you know, has she has some, some thoughts on this, too. Anna, what do you have to say about this? Yeah, John, isn't Ukraine a threat to Russia? It's right next door and they share border. Must be a threat. Yeah, you tell him. You tell him, Anna. Yeah, wow. That's a, that's a big threat. Yeah, that's a big threat. They've been uh, they've been um, they've been massing all those children along the border or whatever. <laughs> Putin has a lot to be afraid of, really. Yeah, right. I don't, I don't know why he's laughing, Anna. This is disrespectful. <laughs> you can't deny yeah. it, John. Ukraine yeah. is almost as big as Texas. <laughs> exactly. Right. You know, you right. don't mess with Texas. Texas. Right. Right. Exactly. Right. You don't mess with Ukraine or else they'll take over your country like a bunch of Nazis, which is what they are, which is why yeah. we need to denazify the U- Ukraine. Yeah. I mean. Um, uh, or the Ukraine. You know what? I'm going to just say the Ukraine, and I don't care what you have to say about it. Uh, I'm going to call it the Russia, too. I will call <laughs> it the Russia. <laughs> How do you uh, take, take that, Vlad? Take that. <laughs> <laughs> Look, let's let's keep going. Ukrainians are Russians' relatives, all right? They're, they're relatives of Russia. They're basically already part of Russia. So what's the big deal if they just become Russia? What's the big deal? Right, Anna? Exactly. Even the word in old word in Russian for Ukraine is Malorossiya, which mm-hmm. means small Russia. Here mm-hmm. you go. Mm-hmm. There you go. Yeah. What well, do you say to that, John? Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I say that, uh, you know, like, may, yeah, maybe you should look at it this way. We're just the bad relative that you shouldn't be inviting to the dinner table and just leave us alone. <laughs> Maybe we, we are obligated to be here um, for Thanksgiving. Sorry, we're doing it for Nana. Uh, OK, so you you clearly haven't listened to too much NPR, John, and that's that's disappointing. But but look, you have to you have to admit this. And, you know, the man Trump, he's also said this a bunch. I mean, Putin, he had some pretty savvy moves ahead of the invasion, right? He went mm. into the country. He, he did it at what? The risk of just like 
you know, some slaps on the wrist of sanctions. He took advantage of the opportunity that Joe Biden set up for him, obviously. So, so what do you have to say to that? Was that not savvy? Is he not a smart man? You can't deny his intelligence. Yeah, well, <laughs> well, I'd say that maybe, yeah, he's too smart for his own good, maybe, you know. He, he should begin listening, listening to people uh, who might offer him something uh, and not think he knows at all because he's uh, the results are coming in and uh, they're not too good. Okay. All right. Anna, can you, can you believe the NPR this guy John's been listening to? Look, this, this is what happens. This is what happens. When I listen to the, the Russian North. television station and I know they say the truth. They've been saying mm -hmm. the truth mm -hmm. since 1917. And what you have is an alternative truth. Mm. Mm -mm. Mm. Alternative truth. Yeah. Alternative facts, I, I've alternative. learned that over the past five, yeah, five, five, six years here in the United States as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going uh, to need another beer. We, we've got to look, we got to, uh, you know, always be looking for the truth. That's right. Well, um, agree on our own facts is, is my, my takeaway from this. Alternative facts, uh, you can have the real truth, which is, uh, you know, what's coming from Trump and the Russian media, or you can have uh, NPR and, I don't know, like every other news channel in the West. Today's episode is brought to you by Russian Propaganda. Russian Propaganda. Not only can it convince an entire nation of bullshit, but what else could make so many people think that Putin looks good shirtless riding a horse? We are at the end of our interview, and uh, I just have one last very important question. How can our listeners get involved? How can our listeners, who are as anxious as I am, listening to the media every day, just glued to the news, seeing these horrific images in the news and, you know, speaking to Ukrainians like Anna and, and just really feeling terrible and, you know, wanting to help. What, what can they actually do to support? Well, there have been some great examples of people doing things and they can do simple things like simple fundraisers, simple mm -hmm. things. I saw one with children, uh, four, I think it was fourth graders in Georgia were collecting money, took money from their piggy banks and their homes, and they collected, I think, over $4,500, one classroom of kids. If you think the need is great now, wait, you know, as we go ahead, and uh, at some point, hopefully when the war is over, at some point, you know, trying to uh, have people resettle back into Ukraine, and the, the housing needs, the shelter, the food needs, all that is, is going to be immense. So, um, concerts, all, all different types of events, getting together with your neighbors and uh, maybe watching some very good video that, you know, something from YouTube and have a neighborhood little party, but like a little block party and, and, and raise some funds that way. You can go on to all the networks. There are a list of all major organizations, you know, many organizations that are taking donations. My organization, the US-Ukraine Foundation, is doing mm -hmm. that as well. There's ways to volunteer and help organizations and, and volunteerism. You know, you can offer your services of, of any type, you know, whatever you're doing, it's going to be needed. There'll be needs for people eventually when people come as refugees to the United States. Mm -hmm. And there'll be people, who, you know, that they will need uh, to stay somewhere for a short period of time, maybe a month or so before they get settled here and, and get, uh, you know, get a job and all that. There's going to be needs for that. 
So the, the needs are, uh, you know, they're great. They will be as more in the future. I would say also for people to stay involved with with what's happening, Keep, you know, stay informed. If you have to raise issues with your elected officials, do that. That would be very helpful. There are rallies from time to time, mm-hmm. including here in this in the local area in D.C. There's every, you know, whether it be every other weekend or so, it seems like there's a rally at Lafayette Park. And join in, spend some time, enjoy some fresh air and root for Ukraine and remind our president that, yeah, we need to uh, stay firm mm-hmm. I, in, I love in that. support of Ukraine. So. so my takeaway from that is there are so many things that folks can do. And uh, for those with limited attention span who need uh, uh, something that is very short and concise, why don't they just donate to the U.S. Ukraine Foundation? John, That'd be great. What is the uh, the place that folks could should go to? to do yeah, that? just it's www.usukraine.org. It's very easy. There you go. US, Ukraine, all one US word. Usukraine.org. Right, and on I the top you'll see you'll see the uh, the icon for a, a donate page and go right there. Very shortly, we'll also be accepting crypto. So, uh, oh, nice. if someone would like to, uh, you know, a Bitcoin here or there, that'd be great too. That's great. That's that's very hip and of the times. That's that's great. Uh, we'll be t- posting a link to that uh, in the show notes. Thank you so much, John, for your time. This has been great. I've I've learned a lot. Um, Thank you, Chris. Thank you very yeah. much. Thank you to the Grassroots Comedy uh, DC. You guys have been very very helpful. Yeah, thanks so much. Much appreciated. Much appreciate it. All right. Take care. Thank you, Anna. Also, thank you for all your your help, too. Thank you. Today's episode featured comedy clips from Anna Tirit Geffen from Grassroots Comedy's live fundraiser comedy show for the U.S. Ukraine Foundation. Also, a big thank you, as always, to our sound engineer, Emery, for your skills and your patience. Also, we added a new weekly comedy show. Yes, another weekly grassroots comedy comedy show at Kramer's in DuPont Circle. This new show is a mix of stand-up, storytelling, and other comedic mediums, all serving to do what we always do, make people laugh while supporting and engaging on causes in a time of need. For more information on grassroots comedy and our upcoming events, Go to our website at grassrootscomedy.com. Follow us on Instagram at grassrootscomedydc, Twitter, grassrootsfunny, and Facebook, grassrootscomedydc. Until next time, this has been The Grasscast.